From theatrical shenanigans, this is The Panel Presents with Brenton Canise, Cindy Sansone Braff, Darren Ingram, Nikki Wichelow. Hello there, and welcome to our latest instalment of The Panel Presents, where I, your host, Rachel Feeney Williams, along with four fabulous panellists, will enjoy discussions of all things theatrical, and we hope you do too. So, let's meet our panellists for this episode. My first panellist is based in Wisconsin, USA, and holds a BA in Drama and Media Studies from the University of Wisconsin, Stevens Point. He is a playwright with work being produced by the Bluebird Theatre Company in New York City via their Bluebird podcast. His additional titles include award-winning director, actor, acting coach, and now panellist on Theatrical Shenanigans. Welcome, Brendan Canise. Good to be here. (laughs) My second panellist is also based in the USA, but this time from New York and comes with a hefty list of titles. This time they include award-winning playwright, author, psychic-slash-medium, relationship expert, and theatre critic. She also has a Bachelor of Fine Arts in Theatre from the University of Connecticut, and if that wasn't enough, she's an author of three books as well as a multitude of plays, all of which are available at grantmeahigherlove.com. Welcome, Cindy Sanson-Braff. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. My third panellist is based in Los Angeles, California, and is a frequent flyer on theatrical shenanigans, having made seven appearances as a voice actor across the series so far. Outside of his appearances on theatrical shenanigans, he's been working professionally in the theatre since he was a child, predominantly as a performer. He's an award-winning published playwright and author, actor, director, producer, instructor, and co-owner of Encore Studios, a performing arts studio in Los Angeles. He describes himself as the lesser half to his wife, Susan, and a very proud father to his kids, Kalia and Skylar. Welcome, Darren Ingram. Hello, hello. Great to finally meet you. And last but certainly not least, my fourth panellist started out on my side of the pond, but now is relocated to Australia. She started her acting career with the Royal Shakespeare Company and continued into semi-professional theatre in the UK for several years after that. Now based in Australia, she has a fabulous career as a voice actor, participates in live theatre, completed a PhD in Resilience as a passion project in 2019, and is also the Director of Marketing for a university in Sydney. A very busy woman. Welcome, Nikki Wichelow. Thank you. Good to be here. Okay. Uh, As always, we start with the group question. If you had the chance to work with one person in the theatrical world, living or dead, who would it be? And we'll start with Darren. Oh, gosh. I get to go first. Um, (laughs) So, um, you know, I actually had a... The first name that came to my head was Hal Prince. um, And for so many obvious reasons, so many amazing obvious reasons... And then the second answer that I had in my head was Dom DeLuise for absolutely not obvious reasons, but he was extraordinarily kind to me and my family when I was younger, and I would love to have returned the favor. He's no longer with us, but that would have been something that I would have loved to have been able to do. So those two reasons. Okay, Nikki? Um, yeah, look, I, I don't think I can choose between two people. Um, Dame... Judy Dench and Jodie ah. Comer, but for, for two very different reasons. Um, Judy is my Shakespeare icon, which is where I started my acting journey. Um, and I'd like to play alongside her in, in any sh- sort of shape, shape or form. Um, and Jodie Comer, I love the fact that she has just this natural talent that shines through. Mm. I think she's a fantastic role model for people looking to get into theatre 
she didn't go to drama school. She didn't follow that kind of traditional path. A lot of people that get into theatre think that's the only path into acting um, and, and basically look where she is now. Um, and th that kind of role in Prima Facie, I think, set her acting showcase to a whole new level. So, yeah, respect to both of them. Absolutely. I'm a big Judy fan myself. Uh, Brenton? Um, I would say Neil Simon and Oscar Wilde. I think um, both of them yeah. really define their genres and um, change the way we think of theater for audiences, um, especially with Oscar Wilde and um, the way he put himself out there and really challenged uh, what was happening in the comedic scene for theater and challenged um, classism and just all those things. But everyone just embraced what he was doing. But yet he was making fun of them at the same time. And it was just a beautiful <laughs> way for his writing to really resonate with people and still absolutely resonates with people today. Um, and for Neil Simon, I feel his comedies still have that strong heart that a good, sophisticated drama should have. It has those nice elements and those colors that are just beautiful for audiences to and characters and actors just to really pop and fall into. And it's just these great characters that really bring out something special and unique you've seen them on the street in real life and yet you can relate to them and just see them in these situations um it's just really inspiring me as a writer both of these um, playwrights and just it would be amazing to just even for an hour to sit with mm -hmm. them and just learn from what they've done yeah definitely and finally cindy okay i would have pick first Tennessee Williams only because mm. when I was 15 and I got to read The Glass Menagerie I wanted to be a playwright after that and mm -hmm. I didn't see the play for 20 more years but you know thinking about 15 years old and being able to really read a play because a lot of people can't read scripts by the way they can't read plays mm. you give some you know that's why we can't even ask our friends to read our plays because they don't know how to read a play so I think it was amazing that I could just read that play and visualize it and want to be a playwright because of it. Mm -hmm. And then I would say Moss Hart and only, I wouldn't have said that two years ago, but I happened to stumble across, you know, my dad was in World War II, he was in Hawaii and all these famous actors and playwrights and everybody would just come there to do shows or just to be there. So he had this long line of autographs that he put on money, Japanese money, German money, all money that's became obsolete pretty much. But Moss Hart was on two of them. Mm -hmm. So I decided, huh, stumbling across this, let me do a little bit of research more about Moss Hart. Of course, I knew he wrote, you can't take it with you and things like that. But I read his autobiography, Act One, and then listened to the play by uh, James Lapine, Act One. And he was really a fascinating man. And, you know, not only, you know, I mean, he kind of bullshitted his way, by the way, like he, <laughs> they, they, you know, they just faked it. They didn't know how to direct him and his friend. And they just, you know, put it together some actors and kind of faked it. So a lot of what he did was just lucking into, you know, the world and then, he actually did direct My Fair Lady on Broadway. So I would love to work with him to say as a director and as a writer. And he wrote this screenplay for the 1954 Star is Born. So really was an interesting person because he was an actor, he was a director, he was a writer um, in, in general, you know, his autobiography is fascinating. So 
I really got into him and thought he's an interesting character. Staying with Cindy, uh, in a world of blockbuster films released on almost a weekly basis, what do you think draws some people back to theatre over cinema? Well, first of all, we all love to eavesdrop, don't we? <laughs> and when you're watching a play, you really feel like you're eavesdropping on someone's life. They're right there. Maybe you're in their home, they're in your bedroom, you're in their office. And we just love hearing so intimately people interact. So I think there's a certain primal human drive to just see how do other people live? What do they do in their homes? So we get to kind of step into that. So I think that's one aspect. And also it's very different from movies. Um, movies are always the same every time you watch it, although we're not the same. So maybe if we watch a movie last year or 20 years ago, we watch it now, we see different things, we notice different things, but it is set in stone. Whereas a play, every night's a little bit different. Sometimes, you know, someone gets sick, someone else steps in a part. Um, we can see all different levels of plays done from uh, big money going to a Broadway production. Then we could see a regional production that's, you know, doesn't, it doesn't nearly have as much money put into it. And we could see a high school production. So even though it's the same play, it's very different depending upon who's in it and everybody brings their own creative slant to it. They could, you know, Shakespeare, sometimes they put it up present day. They, you know, they change a lot. So it can just be the same play seen many, many times and seen very, very differently. Mm. And also just the fun of, you know, sometimes seeing people, you know, on a play, like if it's a high school play, it's your friends. If it's a regional theater, you know, the people. So it becomes this rooting for people that we know. So that's an aspect you, you know, maybe you know a few actors, but mostly you're not going to see people you know, you know, in movies all the time. So I think we like that element too a great deal. Mm -hmm. um, also, it's an Olympic feat. You know, um, my Beethoven play, The Man, The Myth, The Music, was produced basically a one man play. And Beethoven had an hour and a half of dialogue pretty much. Mm -hmm. And when he finished, and he also knew how to play the piano. So they were shocked that he actually could play Moonlight Sonata. And the audience was up on their feet cheering this man. And he was very young who did it. And he had to play the older version of Beethoven. Cheer him because an hour and a half of dialogue is just in itself. We just watched an Olympic event. How did this man learn all those lines, deliver them? So I think there's that element that you don't really see in movies because you can make mistakes and they redo it. And it's, even if it's a crappy movie, it's it's as good as they could get with it. So we don't really see someone's costume fall off or, you know, someone slip on stage or make a mistake. So there's that element of what could happen. And I think when everything goes well, I think it's a really good metaphor for life. Do your homework, do well, do what you're supposed to do. And there's no reset button. There's no redo. And you did great. And I think we all sigh with relief, like, wow, this person got through this or these people got through this. And that's my story. <laughs> and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> I think there's an interesting um, thing that happened when COVID started in that everybody mm -hmm. tried to do plays via Zoom. Mm. Oh, yeah. And and the, the one aspect that, that struck me right away was everyone was afraid of the silence, mm. which you're not when you're on stage. In fact, silence is wonderful. 
the the pauses the the tension the the feel like somebody when you're watching a play and it's somebody's line you look to the other person to see what they're doing and how they're reacting you don't get that in a movie because the movie curates where you're going to look and how you're going to feel about it mm-hmm. or they underscore silence to kind of take away some of that and i i missed that in so many ways and to your point the sweat and the energy and the flaws of the actors and the flaws of the characters that the actors bring to the characters that to me is exciting that you don't get in a curated film i think that's a really interesting point actually and i think that whole point about being curated um I think is is going to be a, a growing chasm between film and theatre. And the more that we see AI rising its head in, in all elements of our life, I just think AI will actually increasingly be the reason people return to the theatre. Because fundamentally, where else are you going to know that the person and the voice that you are seeing is real? other than in theatre yeah. because you'll, you'll see something in the film um, and you'll go, well, is that AI? Have they, you know, engineered that? But the reality of life will continue to be played to us from the stage. Mm-hmm. And I think that AI will actually help. People will start to go, well, that voice and that emotion and that person, real, up close and personal, the only place I'm going to see that is in the theater. Uh, there's this authenticity, I think, as well, with the feeling I've seen everything. Off of Cindy, I also wrote a Beethoven play, and um, the characters all did play the same pieces as well. And just seeing that, um, theater has to be smarter, too, than movies, because everything is laid out right in front of you. Um, mm-hmm. There's no putting the camera in a certain spot and having the viewer look, oh, you have to look here. You can look anywhere you want at any moment you don't have to mm-hmm. look at the person saying the line you can see what the their scene partner is doing it's just that magic of that authenticity and that human feeling um that's real and it's right in front of you and it's easier to feel their emotions it's really difficult to feel something from a movie the performers have to really be doing their best and pushing themselves but on stage there's that closer connection that intimacy that an audience can feel with the actors. And being a theater major, they taught us sometimes you're going to get a bad audience. And if you've ever performed in front of a bad audience, maybe it's just, this is not the right show for this group. It's, it it affects the way the actors perform. If you have a great audience, then you see it differently. So you might see one night with a bad audience, you're like, I don't think the play went that well. And the next night with a great audience, you could see a whole nother level. So I think the audience is also part of the play. They're part, and we like being part of that, that collectiveness of being a part of that play because the mm. audience does influence it tremendously. Mm. There's less exposure as well with the actors in a movie. So if a movie comes out and it bombs, the actors can make yeah. a decision, you know, not to read the reviews, not to look at the box office figures. You have a bad audience or a show bomb in the theatre, they make you very much aware of it. <laughs> it is, as an actor, it is like every time you step on the stage, it's like stepping into the seat of a roller coaster because you intimately connect with your scene partner. Um, how that, you know, to, to Cindy's point, 
how the audience reacts, how you deliver a line that gets a laugh or doesn't get a laugh, um, or your scene partner does something, and you're creating these moments every single time in real time, not completely curated and perfect. And, oh, actually, that's not how I thought that character was going to play it. And that is what makes it so beautiful because it's real life. Mm -hmm. Your interactions with people change every time. And, and that's what I love. When you're watching a movie, they don't hold for a laugh. No. So they're not con taking consideration of the conversation you have with an audience. They're not, they're not giving you that sense of you're part of the process, you're part of the experience. I'm on stage, if, they, if a line drops well, I'm waiting. I'm letting them have it, right? If yeah. something goes awry and they love it, let's go in, let's lean into it. Um, mm -hmm. And and then, you know, to the to the point that Nikki had made, if you're truly listening to your partner, your scene partner, or whoever it is on stage, it affects you, it changes it. It changes things. It makes things new. It makes things exciting. You're not mm -hmm. going to get that with a movie. In, time, in fact, many times you're filmed separately. Mm -hmm. So even that energy isn't connected. Yeah. And you can feel it. There's a, there's sort of a, a saccharine nature to how a movie feels sometimes when it's not real and not present. Uh, okay, Cindy, your final thought on the subject. <laughs> uh, the final thought is that theater is an ancient and enduring art, and it will continue to be an enduring art. You know, and it's you know it gets new audiences all the time, which we I think we have to work a little bit more at. Somehow we need to get other audiences and maybe the ticket price has gotten too high. Maybe that has to be lowered in some ways because, you know, it's just doesn't seem to be drawing them in. Maybe we as new playwrights, you know, new plays can bring them in. But I think we're going to have to work a little on that, you know, to keep the audiences coming that are younger and want to be exposed to it. Okay, uh, Brenton. With theatre and the arts in general having a history of being a pastime for the wealthy, do you believe there's still a certain classist attitude when it comes to the arts? Yes. <laughs> um, Short answer. <laughs> I think, um, you know, after COVID, there seemed to be this trend where um, in 21 and 22, after uh, Zoom plays were, you know, finishing up and that, a lot of repertory and community theatres went back to the classics that everybody loved that were affordable to them. Um, then the ones that were able to survive those theaters would go into that. Um, now in 23 and, you know, going into 24, there's this idea of raising ticket prices and expecting audiences to pay those prices while not bringing anything new to them. Mm. Um, there's been some repertory theaters that I think, have been establishing a pay what you can initiative, which I think is great. Um, you know, typically they're matinee performances, um, at least here in the States. I've, I've noticed that in some repertory theaters. Uh, but I think there's this idea, especially with a lot of touring productions, that when they hike up the prices, that it only allows a certain demographic of people to attend, you know, and maybe when you think of it from a playwright's perspective is that the person i'm writing it for mm. it makes you think of producers just cutting off potential audience members who want to see something and 
from a playwright's perspective need to see that and just really get that message. Mm -hmm. But as playwrights, once we give it off to a theater, um, you know, and once it gets published, there's not really much we can do anymore. It's in the people's hands, which is great. You know, it's two sides of a coin. We get the satisfaction that our work is out there and people are using it, but then we also did, we lose our connection with it when companies do it. We hope mm -hmm. they do it justice with what we wanted, but you know, there's only so much we can control. Um, but it's just the idea that theaters are only allowing certain demographics to attend their show is by pricing. And I think by adjusting that, having original works and um, having stage readings and things like that to initiate ways for writers to not only put their work out there, but for allow audiences to come and enjoy either a free night of theater or a, a more affordable night of theater is something that as theater artists, I think we really need to focus on and dive into for the next generation of theater, which I think we're seeing a big change in theater after COVID. Mm -hmm. You know, each generation of theater, there's a certain playwrights assigned with each time a frame of writing. And I feel like now is the time where we're really at a moment where we can change things. Yeah, absolutely. We would like to spend a million dollars, but we don't have it. So we have to come up with creative ways of making, you know, two actors, two chairs and a stage be compelling. So the writing has to be so compelling that that can keep an audience. You can't keep an audience watching a movie with cheap budget, but we can make theater less expensive by not competing with movies. I think that's the problem. They're trying to be like a blockbuster movie and putting a gazillion dollars into the flash and the zip and the zap, whereas you don't even have to do that. The audiences use their imagination and the good script and the good actors. You don't need so much of that amount of money spent. And I think that's what's making it more and more costly. They're trying to compete with movies rather than do what you do best. You could with no money you could make a fabulous entertaining two hours the theater is is struggling from the change generally not just because of covid because of the way people consume facts or experience basically you know we are consumers of experiences and cinemas are struggling to show blockbuster movies People don't want to leave the comfort of their home. They want to be able to watch things in their home. Um, and I think that theatre will be experiencing that as well. I don't want to to get out, get dressed, get parked and, and go and see something. Um, you know, where, where's the appetite? But I, I think, uh, and I think Brenton made the point earlier, um, I think it's really interesting because, of course, theatre started out as a way to amuse the great unwashed. If you think about <laughs> Shakespeare in the 1600s, um, you know, the theatre itself was built on the wrong side of town, in inverted commas. So, you know, you would be going to watch theatre in amongst human filth, prostitutes, you know, you'd be, you'd be serviced in the queue, as it were, to, to queue up to go and watch theatre. Um, and somehow there's been this transition to the perception that theatre is for the wealthy um, and, you know, that sort of classist attitude. But I'm not sure that, that that is necessarily the reason 
why theatre is seen to be the pastime for the wealthy. It, you know, is it because it's the, it's the wealthy that have got, you know, three or four hours to drive to the theatre, get parked, make it an evening instead of just slobbing around at home and being spoon fed, you know, a saccharine example of what life could be that, that you might get through through a film if you look at what uh jeffrey seller um did with the rush tickets and ham for ham where it's a lottery system and you can be mm. lucky right you're you're lucky to join mm. those that have the money and the means to to you're, you're lucky mm. right you you're one of the poor that's now lucky and so we're we're acknowledging that there is this huge disparity and so we're going to create this sort of bucket of excitement that only has a limited availability to the masses. And and so you've said, oh, we have a problem. We know we have a problem. Well, we're not going to fix the problem. We're just going to use it as advertising. <laughs> and and mm -hmm. to your point of the intelligence level, look at the most successful shows outside of Hamilton. You have Beauty and the Beast, Frozen, Aladdin, right show there's there's an understanding of the story there's no fear there's no anxiety i know how it's going to end i know what's going to happen um you know that so you don't go in going oh i wonder what this is going to be like uh there was one that was a curious incident of the dog at nighttime right mm. horribly unexpected in so many different ways and that one did well but it did well based on word of mouth and and volume of people and it is absolutely a unicorn in that space mm. everything else is this sort of packaged presentation of here eat this cool i know what this is this is delicious i think fundamentally it's people's desire to want to go to the theater mm. um the rsc have just launched this uh, massive price reduction on uh, you know come and see come and see shakespeare instead of paying 150 uh, you know 150 pounds you can pay twenty five pounds, mm -hmm. uh, and they're still not getting take up. So that that to me says that it it's not about the price; it's about the psychological relationship that we have with the theatre. I can be at work and and I'll say, "Oh, I'm going to the theatre tonight," and people go, "Oh, hoity toity, <laughs> oh la di da," and you're like, "Where does that where does that come from? Tell me why you think I, you know, that that kind of." middle to upper class it oh it's only the you know in the echelons of, of that kind of social standing oh you go you go to the theater oh look at you like <laughs> i just i do i want to shake them by the throat and go where does that come from yeah it's a huge leap because as you said shake the the globe was originally for the unwashed masses and now somewhere along the line it's gone from that to being coupled in the same group with ballet and opera and you yeah. think hang on a minute <laughs> If only people knew, literally used to, you know, they used to walk around with a urine bucket so that you didn't lose your place and you could just piss in a bucket um, so that you didn't have to to leave. Like, uh, uh, that does sound awfully well, convenient, though. I mean, it does. Well, I tell you what is awfully convenient. The prostitutes used to walk up and down the line as well and service their customers so that you, you didn't have to leave the theatre group <laughs> welcome to the globe and uh yeah if you wouldn't mind just you know taking a couple of minutes while i just take you know, have a bit of light relief <laughs> yeah anyway brenton your final thought on the situation i think that to break the cycle it needs to be the audience to do that and i think as audiences you know 
the ones who have been marginalized by theaters uh, just need to support local and support local playwrights, even if it's not completely a full play, a stage reading, anything, you know, you know, helping your play, helping your friend get their play up and running, even if you're reading in and you're not an actor, but you're just moving it in a direction that maybe someday will hopefully change the cycle of how theater companies and producers see audiences. Because I think we have to consider the mindset of a director and actor and a writer compared to the mindset of a producer. They're two different mindsets. One's in for money. Well, obviously the actors, people want to get paid, but they're in it for the art. And I think with producers, they get lost on the money. And if you focus too much on that, then your show is not going to be good and audiences will not be returning. Uh, Nikki, in a world where a career in the arts is considered a difficult goal, understatement of the year, what do you believe are some ways the industry or the education system can support young people who want to get involved? Look, I think I think it's a, a tricky one. Um, I think you need to include parents in in that list of industry and education as kind of the little bit of the the trinity mm. um and that trinity i think can have a massive impact on on a young person's desire to to take up a career in the arts um i think from a societal perspective um, many opinions are formed out of public policy and and bureaucracy so i think a lot of that that key desire to to move into a career in the arts or be involved i think people parents industry education look at the bureaucrats making decisions um and i think a lot of that sort of public policy actually drives opinions um which mm -hmm. then seeps into you know everything else that that's done um I, we know that cuts to the funding of the arts by local councils across England. Um, in fact, there was a recent article in the stage um, which described those those funding cuts from the bureaucrats, from industry, which then kind of filters down to education. Um, it, they described it as a looming disaster um, and that these funding cuts will actually lead to long-term damage to the theatre landscape. Jack Gamble, who is the director of the Campaign for the Arts, he said that in real terms, English councils have halved their cultural investment um, in the arts since 2020. Councils of all political stripes are buckling under the pressure. So again, I think those decisions are, are filtering down and making it you know, really hard. Um, I also think it's really interesting because I, so I did my PhD in loneliness and building communities post-pandemic um, and it was clear that being part of a community experiencing a richness to the lives that we lead visiting taking part in the arts it, there is this sort of mounting evidence that the arts are a strategic ally I think for me what that means is that industry education parents that are exposed to these cuts they start to build this societal expectation that these services are just not valued mm. and i think this seeps into other parts of decisions that are taken around the arts it seeps down into the, the decisions that, that young people take um i think i i saw this beautiful quote um that this attitude of funding cuts reeks of contemporary short-termism and I just I was like that's exactly what what you know what that is about 
it neglects, and I think Gamble said, it neglects the long-term damage it inflicts on the cultural fabric of our shared society. And that will only get worse. Um, so, you know, you have the education system, the industry um, itself being exposed to all of this activity and young people are just going to go, well, um, you know, I'm, I'm just I'm going to study this and I'm possibly not going to get you know a job out of it. When I first started acting on the stage at the age of 16 with the Royal Shakespeare Company, my mum told me that it would never last and I need to get a proper job. Um, and I just think that, you know, a lot of young people will will still experience that, you know, that that challenge on a, a sort of a daily basis. Um, so I do think that if young people are to get involved, I think more needs to be done in the industry, the education system to demonstrate the value of the arts. That's that that kind of ethereal connection to to what it means to be human um, and that it's not as hard as it seems. Um, so, yeah, the people who've made it in this industry need to give a leg up to those who haven't, mm -hmm. um, to the younger generation. I feel like theater is one of the industries where um, people who've made it feel threatened and there's this disconnect. But I feel like if we come together, both the younger and older generation who's maybe more successful, they can guide free master classes at universities. They can you know, use some of that money for scholarships just finding new ways to inspire and give a chance to students who want to pursue it, who may not be able to afford it, or those who are about to graduate, give them a chance, give them advice to find new ways to be as successful as they possibly can. I think it also comes down to the person themselves. They have to be totally in it to know that they want to be successful and if they're totally in it and they're totally prepared, then I think that will give them a leg up. And I think with this challenging industry, you know, I've seen a lot of times from uh, people who graduate with a musical theater degree end up becoming a lawyer and just having this total shift. Obviously, there's that use of acting still in the courtroom, but the idea of giving up on your dream um, is really a sad thing. You know, especially in the world that we live in, um, only so many people can attain it. But if you can just connect with someone who has maybe more experience in the industry, and if those people are willing to guide you and lead the younger generation, then it's just going to make things easier moving forward. I've said it before that the the job that I do Monday to Friday, nine to five is what I do. This and writing and performing, that is who I am. And that's all it comes down to. I'm, mm. I, it, the logical side of my brain knows I am never going to make millions off of doing this, but it makes me happy. And I think that's kind of, I'm not saying that's the, the entirety of the attitude that young people need to adopt, but I do think there needs to be part of that in there. If you go into the arts world just looking to make money, as you say, you are going to have issues. Yeah. Because we can't all be Robert Downey Jr. and we can't all be Lin-Manuel Miranda. With all the things you have to do, it's going to add a richness to your life. And, you know, even you might hate it. I have to do this job or that job. People love hiring actors, by the way, because the show must go on. They know to put their best face forward no matter what they're feeling. But I really think 
if you have to struggle a little bit with a day job and struggle for money, maybe it's the wisdom of the universe to make you uh, understand life deeper and that it isn't always easy. Doors aren't always opened. And yet even doing that job to the best of your ability is, you know, it's good karma. So, you know, don't always look at it as like, oh, I wish I could just do this. I mean, all I ever wanted to be was a playwright, but I've done a thousand other things. And I look at my life and think I probably would have been very bored to have just been a playwright and not have done gazillion other things as well. So I try to look at the big picture of life. You, In the end, we'll be what we want to be. Maybe it's just a long winding road to that. Not to mention a lot of playwrights are just genuinely inspired by real life. Yeah. Number of, of plays written about conversations oh, yeah. I've had or overheard <laughs> that would never have happened otherwise. Or bosses we wanted to tell off, you know, whatever it is, we could work that right into a play. Mm-hmm. So I've had a I've had an interesting experience in Brenton on on your example. I did go and get a degree in musical theater. Uh, I immediately started performing professionally from that um, and had a fairly successful professional career. What was interesting was the only reason I stopped was I knew that I wanted to be a dad Mm. and that I didn't want to go from town to town, job to job, trying to do that. So I made an intellectual decision to make that change. Um, I'm also a teacher. I, I, I run a performing arts studio. And we do a lot of college prep and a lot of post-college prep for people. And what I found is what separates those that are able to make the leap is one part of it is having a mentor. I think that's a very good point that you made is having a mentor, finding somebody that's doing it so you can sort of emulate and replicate even if they're not direct to you. Mm -hmm. But two is most performers or artists treat themselves in the capsule of the art they like to do. Here's what I mean. So if you have an actor They think of themselves as an actor. A writer thinks of themselves as a writer. Perfectly natural. What they don't do and what colleges don't teach them is to think of themselves as their own CEO. They don't give them those skills. Mm -hmm. They don't teach them that they also have to be their own marketing manager. They have to do ROI on the amount of time and effort that they do towards certain tasks. They have to look at their budget and say, how much do I have to do to hit something? What low-level things do I have to do, uh, whether it's extra work or working on as an assistant to a director or something that will pay the rent? And how much of that do I have spared to do the things that I want to do and budget plan and time plan? Nobody teaches those things in any universities that I've ever been acknowledged with. And people don't think that way because they're trained to think like an artist. And you have to separate the artist from the CEO to really find your success self-generated and treat it like your own business and separate mm-hmm. your art from your business. Um, otherwise, yeah, a lot of people are going to fail. A lot of people are going to look at it and go, this is too daunting. I can't possibly do this. Going back to the whole mentorship thing, I've been, it's been mentioned many times about the idea of finding your own community as um, someone involved in the arts world, be it as a performer or as a playwright or anything. And I found that since the pandemic, um, joining the Playwright Connection and New Play Exchange were two huge communities of support for endless advice and assistance. So say when I started this, I had absolutely no goddamn idea what I was doing. Um, and I was lucky in the sense that I knew Jonathan Cook, who does Gather by the Ghost Light, um, Bob LeBlanc, who does endless... Uh, 
radio shows and George Sophie who does on stage off stage and they were all more than happy to offer advice and I think that's the thing is is finding your even if you can't find a specific mentor finding a community that you can at least go I'm doing this is this right or I think this is this right because as far as I'm concerned there's no such thing as a stupid question especially when you're starting out because it can be absolutely terrifying uh Nikki your final thought um yeah my my final thought about um a, a career in the arts you know what the industry and the education um system can do to support young people um and I think it is it, it, what Darren has has just said and it's around changing the narrative you you know we continue to bemoan the loss of funding you know we we still hear people say oh you get a proper job and um I think we need to change the narrative and I think the point was excellently made earlier um in that when you have a career in the arts you you need to be taught how to be a freelancer and I think that's fundamentally you know, the industry and education system, we constantly punt out young people who have no idea how to manage their finances, who have no idea how to take care of their health, um, who have no idea to address the warning signs when their mental health starts to decline. And if you're going to be a freelancer, you are your business. Um, yeah. And the, the the context that you operate in is very different to, you know, getting... A, a, a job in inverted commas where your boss will you know push you around you get superannuation and you go home at the end of the the day or the week and you go well that was just a pile of crock of shit um and I think that's what's missing from the education industry system the reality of what it means to be in the arts it is not all you know rainbows and, and happy dancers and and so therefore how do you manage your career yourself um, and I think that's, you know, a significant part. And I think that's why a lot of young people either don't go into it or give up. Um, and, you know, and everyone looks at, oh, my God, look at all these amazing actors. If you think about the bell curve of distribution, um, only about 0.001% of actors are, you know, earning, you know, enough money. So, so yeah, I think I think we don't have those difficult conversations with young people. And I think we need to. Mm, definitely. Darren, um, do you think theatre has become more about the financial than the creative? And if so, what advice would you give to the powers that be to change that? Yes. <laughs> um, sorry to steal a line from Breton. That's fine. Um, you know, uh, yes, it is. It And as a business owner, I get it. I understand it. Um, I think there's, you know, uh, one of the statements made earlier, and I think it was Breton that mentioned it, that producers are very much about the money. Um, that's their job. Right. Their job is to figure out how to make something profitable, how to gather money and then make money back for those people that they've gathered for and then make the show profitable so that they can make money and then they can make bigger and bigger things and have bigger houses and cars. So, yes, I do think that um, that is sort of the mentality of how do we make as much money as possible. Um, so you look at Broadway and you see the same 10 faces, you know, running from show to show to show because they know they're marketable. And those people that you wish would be in those roles that are a little more unknown don't get the opportunities. Um, so what's fascinating is the the shows that we lamented earlier um, are the ones where those that are unknown have the most opportunity in the Frozens and the Beauty and the Beast and, and so forth, because the shows themselves are the market, not the names. 
Mm. You wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't care if Sutton Foster was in Frozen. It'd be great, but it, you wouldn't care. You'd still take your kids to go see Frozen, mm. right? So that, that's where those opportunities are. But do I think that it's all about the money? Absolutely, I do. That is where um, changing that paradigm is also changing. Um, and it was, it was something that was said earlier of changing the audience's expectation of theater. Um, and that's a very hard, long road, not an easy road. You change the expectation of the spectacle, change the expectation of the connection, of the size, of the space and the venue, and what makes theater valuable in the the ultimate example of either West End or Broadway, where you're like, oh, it has to be this big, massive thing. Mm. No, it doesn't. Mm. It can be a community theater. It can be somebody's black box. It can be anywhere where you your agreement with the audience is that I'm going to take you on an experience for the next two to three hours and you're going to come with me. That should be the the baseline, not I'm going to dazzle you with as much money as I can throw at you. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I read somewhere that like the jackets in Hamilton were tens of thousands of dollars. They don't have to be, right? Mm-hmm. So it's that kind of a change in paradigm. I mean, there's shows out there like Waiting for Godot that the entire set's a chair and a tree. Great. Let's do some more shows like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and let's change how we spend. Let's change that so that then the profit margin, because the profiteers are always going to be the profiteers, the profit margin is lower. And if we can change the expense of the show, if we can change the the way that shows are actually created in an, in the bottom line we can then change that sort of price model backwards mm. it won't always work you'll have profiteers that go cool i'm this show only costs this much i'm going to make way more on the back end i get it mm. we're going to always have those people but i think once we start to change that mentality of the expectation of the client that's when we're going to have we're going to be able to change the expectation of the profit and it's very very challenging you know um that's a long-term problem. That's not a that's not a short, easy fix. I do think, though, what's interesting is the advent of technology might lower costs long-term. Mm-hmm. And that's an interesting concept. You see a lot of shows using projections instead of backdrops, which means that you have a continuation of that expense. That expense gets amortized over a long period of time as opposed to it being a constant recyclable ex- expense of a new paint new drop, new hang. Um, the the advent of technology to move things around the stage means you need less crew. Sorry, Union, I don't mean to try to take away your jobs, but that's what that usually means is once you automate certain things, you have less people needed for those things. Hmm. So the advent of these things makes a little bit of an expense less, but it also tends to elevate the expense of everything else because now you're doing fireworks and blah, 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 because, oh, I saved here, I can make it more explosive. So it's still the change in mindset that's going to change the expense. Mm. It's just my thoughts. And I think you have to look at things like, you know, there's, it's all problems in producing a play and you have to find solutions. And if you're doing a smaller theater with a smaller budget, in my mind, I think, what would be the most expensive way that I could do it? And now I can't do it. And then I have to come up with a little more creative solution. It might take me a couple of days but ultimately the creative cheaper solution happens to work very well. So, you know, we don't always have to go for what's the most expensive way to, what's the, what's the glitziest, why don't you think about it for a couple of minutes or a little time 
and figure out I could save a lot of money by doing a more creative solution to it than than the easy money fix it thing. So mm-hmm. it's really just thinking out, outside of a box and really what people go to theater for is just the emotional experience, the you know feeling something deeply. And throwing a lot of money into it doesn't always make me feel that you know I felt I've been moved. Most of the time I feel like I've just ate a lot of junk food laced with arsenic um, <laughs> because it was just glitz and a lot of fanfare and a lot of money. But the bottom line was it wasn't a good script. It wasn't even particularly good acting. It wasn't, it didn't move me at all. Maybe the audience gave it a standing ovation and that's what they wanted to see. Maybe that's what they think they want to see. But I think we could do things that are just more theatrical, more moving and not think about so much money is the answer to it. When you look at like the balance sheet of a theater and those decisions are being made around, and I have I have overheard these decisions as I'm sure you you all have. And the decision is we've got, you know, an emerging playwright. Uh, we're going to produce their play. And the CEO will go, nope, because nobody will come. And so therefore we are going to produce 2024 season will just be a bunch of saccharine plays because we know that our funding's been cut and we need to get audiences. We need to, you know, we have fixed overheads. We have to run the theater lights, you know, maintenance, insurance, et cetera. So therefore our 2024 season is going to be populated by established playwrights that that audiences will, will come and see. And mm. so those decisions will just go round and round and round and it will, and I think the pandemic hasn't helped. Um, and you look at the balance sheet of that theater and they are 500,000 pounds in the hole and they've got three years before they actually close the theater and turn the building into a block of flats. Um, so yeah, unfortunately, I think we are still reeling from you know that that terrible experience that that we've all had. But I still think that the funding cuts will actually make it even worse. Mm-hmm. And you know, I've seen playwrights go, "Well, that's it. I'm not you know I'm not going to be produced for the next two or three years because the money's not there." And that's such a sh- that's terrible. It's a terrible mm-hmm. situation to be in. That's what makes community theater so fascinating because. I've seen some really great community theaters in small communities where the person who's a carpenter comes and builds the set. The person who can sew makes the costume. Everybody does what they can do. Who can who can do the makeup does the makeup. And all of a sudden you have what is a really good, excellent done play, but the amount that it costs was actually minimal because everybody did the work that they could. They put it in and no, they didn't get paid for it. They didn't make money but they created art. Theater people do it for the love. They do it because they love it and they can't not do it. But in Mm. terms of dollars and cents, the amount of hours I've spent writing plays and, you know, if I had just flipped burgers in McDonald's, I could probably, you know, buy a mansion. You know, it's just the amount of hours we do for no money is what people can't comprehend, but we can't not do it. So there's a wonderful, I forget who, I don't know who said it. It was me. I just well, it was you, okay. It was, it was a wonderful quote that Darren apparently said um, that when you get to the end of your life, the key thing you remember is the people who are, people who influenced it, and that's what being in the arts is about. It's about the people you meet and the experiences you have. It is not about getting, you know, getting to the grave and pulling out a massive receipt and going, "This is how much I made." <laughs>
not to mention in the arts, the nicer you are along the way, the more people are likely to help you when you do have issues. I told you I had a successful career. I didn't audition half of it because people knew me. And mm -hmm. once they get to know you and know that you're a good person and good to work with, you know, maintain your, your respectability. I, I teach my 100%. son all the time. We're not fighting for fame. We're fighting for respect. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. what we're doing. For sure. I, I, I'm a funeral celebrant as well as being a wedding celebrant. I, I do have a few, I have a few strings to my bow. And um, one of the things that I never, never, never hear people say at a funeral is, oh, I wish I'd spent more time at work. <laughs> I wish I'd, you know, spent more time earning more money. People talk about, you know, the people that they've met and the experiences that they've had and the differences that they've made to the people around them. And I think that's yeah. what the creative arts does. Um, and it, you know, it, it creates that richness. Um, yeah. So Darren, your final thought. If we changed how we spoke about theater, how we spoke about shows to talk about the experience the audience will have, as opposed to the number of awards they had or some log line or some headliner. Mm. Um, but actually that's how we discussed it is this is the experience you're going to have. So in, we could say, hey, the experience you're going to have is you're going to see the show you saw 400 times before and hate it. <laughs> there you go. Or the experience is going to be whatever wonderful show that has been created. And here's the you know journey that you're going to be taken on. And we don't concern ourselves with the headliner, how many awards it won, whether or not it was profitable back in you know 1947. Like, who cares? What journey are you taking me on? How, how, what am I going to experience? We might actually get that mindset correct. Okay, so our, our final uh, group question. What genre do you most like to write and or perform and why? And we'll start with Cindy. Um, well, I don't have a favorite. It becomes whatever the story uh, demands. So mm. if it's something that could be a dark comedy just because the the topic is going to be a dark comedy than it would be if it's just supposed to be a comedy because it's funny if it's supposed to be tragic comedy it just kind of I, I wouldn't say I have a favorite it's just whatever the material calls for and the best way to express it is the is what becomes my favorite yeah that's fair Brenton um off of Cindy's point I think <laughs> once an idea forms of a story worth telling and once you put pen to paper, that's when the genre starts to form right in front of you. And, um, you know, I like the idea of challenging genre and genre bending. I think that just adds a nice complexity and a nice edge to your story that someone's not expecting. Um, or, you know, just having that twist ending in the middle of a uh, dark comedy or having a romance horror play. You know, it's those elements that bring out curiosity and really make plays original and they stick with people mm. um so for that i think it's what we bring to it um the genre will come we just have to bring a story worth telling and the characters will just reveal that in the end mm. nikki um i'm in the esteemed presence of some playwrights i'm merely an actor so please forgive me there's uh, so no I'm... merely <laughs> no merely we can't survive without you yeah <laughs> so i suppose uh yes um my favorite genre 
to perform um, is actually serious drama. Um, I, I think for, for me, I think it gives people watching an opportunity to connect with something that they might be feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, it does require, of course, an audience who is n- not, who, you know, is not being dulled by the uh, vanilla content, which is what we've kind of discussed earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, no kind of easy to follow scripts, happy or predictable endings. I just, it bores me. Um, and I think a serious or complex drama, which is thought provoking, leaves an audience thinking about the play long after they've left the theatre uh, as an actor. I, I just love uh, it's immensely satisfying. And I think you you continue to live that kind of authentic life. And I think it stretches you. I love working with a script um, that, that does that. And I, I think I might have mentioned earlier, I'm doing an Andrew Bovel at the moment, which is um, Australian playwright. Uh, and it's the play's called When the Rain Stops Falling. And it it the subject matter is paedophilia. Mm. Um, and it is beautifully constructed um the depth of the characters but it is immensely draining but i love it because it it makes audiences sit up and question their attitudes about such a terrible um you know experience so Mm. yeah and finally darren i i want to be moved um in one way or another you know, I, I, as an either an audience member, or a performer, a writer, um, you know, I, I have this image in my head all the time of everybody that comes into a show is a clear glass of water and we're going to change the colors. Um, mm. We're going to add, you know, either Kool-Aid if it's a fluffy thing or we're going to make it tea or we're going to we're going to do something to it um, to change that and make it different by the time they leave so that they're discussing, they're changed. They, they've, they've felt something, even if it's a lighthearted comedy. They felt something throughout that process. And, and as a performer, I want to be able to be moved by it as well um, and feel that throughout the process. And as a writer, I want to have moments where I have to stop writing because I've affected myself, as weird as that sounds, mm. with where I've gone with something. So um, I want to be moved all the time. Um, it's one of the things that brought me into performance and theater. Okay, that has brought us to the end, guys. Thank you so much for being here. It's been amazing. It's so great to meet all of you and good luck with all your endeavors. And that brings us to the end of another panel presents. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Cindy, Brenton, Nikki and Darren. And if you did, then make sure you tell us so. We are on Facebook and Instagram under Theatrical Shenanigans. And we also have a Buy Me A Coffee page and an Etsy page with merchandise. Also, if you're out there and involved with theatre and you'd like to come and have a chat, then we are always looking for panellists to get involved. Just email rfwscripts at gmail.com with a bit about yourself and we'll get in touch. We will be back with another panel show on the 2nd of March, but in the meantime though, I've been Rachel Feeney-Williams, this is Theatrical Shenanigans, bringing down the curtain and saying, I hope you can join us next time. Theatrical Shenanigans part of an RFW Scripts production. Found on Spotify, Amazon Music, Podbean and anywhere else you can find your podcasts. Music is written and produced by Chris Cody.